Hi there, it's Olivia. If you enjoy the conversations we have on this show, then there's another podcast you should check out. It's called The Next Big Idea, and it's produced in partnership with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Each week, host Rufus Griscom invites you to listen in on a conversation that might just change the way you see the world. You'll get life lessons from award-winning scientists, best-selling authors, inventors, and historians. Folks like Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Gretchen Rubin. Recent episodes have explored how you can have meaningful conversations in a transactional world, all the ways AI is poised to transform education, creativity, and healthcare, and why failure is, paradoxically, the key to success. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEth World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16B. Today's episode is with Daphne Kohler, founder and CEO of Incitro, as well as the co-founder of Coursera, a MacArthur Award winner, and a former professor in the Department of Computer Science at Stanford University. She is joined by A16Z Bio and Health general partner, Vijay Pandey. Together, they talk about Daphne's career journey, how Daphne thinks about the last few decades of progress in AI, and how Incitro leverages artificial intelligence and machine learning to explore biology through new models of discovery. As an additional note, you might notice that Vijay's audio quality dips in the latter half of the episode, that's an unavoidable artifact of one of California's disruptive atmospheric river systems mid-recording. Let's get started. Uh, Daphne Kohler, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the BioEats World podcast. Thank you for inviting me, BJ. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to first talk a, a bit about your founder story that um, some people may know you as a iconic Stanford professor, MacArthur Award winner. Uh, some people may know you from the, being co-founder of Coursera and your work with MOOCs, or what you're doing now as, as founder of Incitro, bringing AI to life sciences and drug design. But uh, it seems to start with one key place, which is computer science, right? So why computer science? Of all the things you could do, uh, like, why did you start with computer science? Honestly, that goes really way back. It goes back to my uh, almost, I would say, my pre-youth when I was a pre-teen. Um, yep. We had a computer lab that at this point is so dated that I can't even begin to tell you what kind of computers were in there. And um, and I was like a kid. It was a wonderful world. Um, you got to tell something what to do, and it did it. I mean, kids don't usually have that power. It's the world telling them what to do. Here, there was a device that I told it what to do, and sometimes it even obeyed. And so that was my entry point into computer science. And then I went on to study that discipline in college because it was just really both fun and also very, um, I think, intellectually exciting. I, you know, too, had the similar, like, falling in love period, like from fifth grade, I think that was like 1982. And it is just amazing what you could build. But how did that build? Like what gets you uh, sort of going from there to deciding to go into computer science and then even computer science PhD? So there wasn't that big of a gap because I actually ended up doing my undergraduate degree in parallel with high school. So the computer club thing, which was in ninth grade, just transitioned into starting college in 10th grade. And so didn't have much of a time to think about it. Well, and is that common in Israel? That Yeah, yeah, it was pretty unusual. 
So I graduated my undergraduate at 17 and I did my master's and I did my military service. So I actually started my PhD at the age of 21, which is only a little bit younger than most people um, because I had a three-year military service in the middle, which was also kind of interesting because you can think of it as um, the human brain doing Bayesian reasoning because I was an intel analyst in my military work and got to put together a bunch of little factoids, none of which made sense in isolation, but you had to piece them together to create a larger picture of what was going on in some someone else's world where they were obviously trying to hide it from you and you needed to figure that out. So it really was like Bayesian reasoning, but in the human mind. Well, also, it's such a striking metaphor, potentially, for what it is to be a biologist, right? True. Okay, so that makes sense now. So, so then uh, after doing that, which also, I would think that puts you into grad school in a much different mindset than a lot of your grad student peers, right? You've had a lot of life experience by then, even if you're basically the same age. No, for sure. And that's true, I think, of Israelis in general. But by the time, in most cases, it's their college education. They're adults when they start that. So by the time I got to college at the age of 21, I was an officer. I had actually led a small team. I had delivered documents of of significance to national security. And so, yes, it's a very different type of feel than just going directly after an undergrad of partying and such. Uh, totally. Yeah. And so you go to grad school and, and who's your advisor? So my advisor um, was not actually a Stanford professor. He was an adjunct professor named Joe Halpern, who was at IBM Almaden. He's now at Cornell University. And my PhD was very different in many ways from what I do today in that I had been very mathematical in my youth and mostly enamored by the elegance of a beautifully constructed proof or a beautiful model for something. And so my uh, PhD ended up being very abstract and I would say obscure um, in creating like a, it was called from knowledge to belief and and had a lot of um, math and a lot of uh, philosophy and was broadly construed as AI, but not really in any pragmatic sense. And in some ways, there was a real turning point when I went and did my postdoc at Berkeley with Stuart Russell, who asked me, I think, uh, at a lunch that he took me to very early in my postdoc, so if I gave you you know, a couple of really uh, crackerjack programmers, uh, you know, undergrads who can would love to help you take your PhD and turn it into something real, what would you have them do? And I stood there with my jaw agape saying, I have no idea. <laughs> I think what, what I had done was beautiful and mathematical, but it didn't actually do anything. And I think that conversation has stuck with me for, for many years and has uh, really was a turning point for me because It started me on a trajectory where over time, both in my postdoc and then as a faculty member and then post-faculty life, I have become progressively more and more applied and enamored less with the mathematical elegance of what I do and more with the value that it brings to people. And you can see that arc throughout my career. So after my postdoc, I came back uh, into Stanford as a faculty member in the computer science department. I was, I think, arguably the first machine learning hire into Stanford's computer science department. Uh, it was very much a old-fashioned AI at, uh, institution at the time that I got there with some of the truly great leaders in AI, like, you know, John McCarthy and Ed Seigenbaum, who really had 
build the field of AI in its infancy, if you will, but they hadn't really adopted the more numerical form of AI that uh, that I've been working on, which I would say, when people ask me, how did you become an AI person? My response is, I didn't actually become an AI person. AI became what I was doing. Yes. Which is, uh, in the early days, people did not uh, admit numerical methods as being part of AI. And so I was actually kind of on the fringes or arguably beyond the fringes. And then the field grew to encompass what we were doing and ultimately grew to have that as a center of mass. We're talking, this is 1997-ish? When I came back to Stanford as faculty, it was 1995. 1995, okay. And, you know, when you say that uh, AI was sort of old school and machine learning was new, actually, it's kind of mind-blowing because we kind of think about machine learning as as being such a foundational area of how we think about things. But, like, AI before then, what was AI before then? It was expert systems, it was... It was expert systems. It was logical theorem proving. There was an entire panel at the biggest AI conference. I wasn't there, but I'd heard that from a number of people where the vast majority of the panel, with the exception of Judah Pearl, who I'd hold to be one of the truly great leaders yes. in bringing AI into this new world, um, were unanimous in saying that uh, AI does not use numbers because people don't use numbers in how they think about the world. Now, I don't know how we could possibly know what happens in the internal of our brain. And with the modern day neural networks, I would say that there is more and more, I would say, substantiation for the fact that at least in some ways, our brain does use numerical calculations, even if we are not conscious of them. But at the time, it was uh, almost like a, a, a given fact that in order to mimic the way in which people think, you couldn't use numbers. Well, and it's really interesting because even just nomenclature, artificial intelligence uh, is this storied space. And this almost has to take a new name of machine learning. Uh, it, it's something different. And at the time, machine learning is what it's it probably still a little before probabilistic graphical networks and so on. It's S SVMs or... It's they they these emerge in parallel, like whatever random forest and support vector machines were uh, emerging in parallel to probabilistic graphical models. Uh, so, yeah, but I would say even today, people often treat them as synonymous. In fact, there's often this like one word, which is deep learning, machine learning, AI, as if they're all synonymous with each other and they are not. Um, they're actually quite different, at least yeah. in my eyes. But well, well, uh, yes. can you can you break it apart? Uh, what differences do you see between them? So I would say, and this is not necessarily universally held view, but uh, my perspective is that artificial intelligence is a quest to build machines to behave that behave in ways that are similar to the intelligence that we see in a human. I would say that machine learning is a methodology for taking large amounts of data and learning from that how to achieve good performance in certain tasks. It is the case that most of artificial intelligence tasks today are solved better via machine learning than via other approaches, but that doesn't mean that's a universal fact. Maybe more to the point, there is a whole bunch of stuff that machine learning can do that a person will never be yes. able to do, including most of what I currently do in biology is beyond what a person could uh, could envision doing. So to my mind, they are two circles in an intersecting Venn diagram with a very large overlap, but they are not synonymous. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And so you're at Stanford, sort of at the dawn of machine learning's popularity. And at least from what I saw from actually being there kind of at a similar time was that once these methods started becoming 
more familiar and uh, and widespread, people started applying machine learning to lots of different things. And then, and the key thing is that there was some data that you could use for training and actually doing things. I mean, what was your experience for like those early days of machine learning? So, you know, that's very interesting. And in some ways, it's a, also an answer to a question that I'm sure you'll come to later, which is how did I get into biology? Yes. Because yes. that the data sets that were available to machine learning people at the time were rather, um, in many cases, boring and lame. So the most. <laughs> like CFAR um, or. Yeah. Uh, CFAR was actually later and better. The okay. first ones were like that. 20 news groups, which is like literally a few dozen articles from each of 20 news groups that you had to classify into which news group. Was it about computers or was it about pets? And it was just like, I can't bring myself to care. Um, And at the time, and this was already the late 90s, the data sets that were available or emerging in biology were more interesting. So, for example, the first microarray data sets were coming out and all yes. of a sudden you had gene expression for 20,000 genes across, oh my goodness, 100 samples, which of course today is ridiculous, but at the time that was large-ish. Huge. And so you could actually start doing things like asking which gene talks to which other gene and what does that tell me about the cellular networks? And so it was more interesting. Technically, it was also more interesting in terms of it actually gave you novel insights, which the 20 news groups couldn't really... And so it was, and then ultimately it also became more aspirational because you were actually discovering insights about biological systems that might eventually give rise to, you know, something that could help people. And, you know, I started to work on some cancer data sets, not just the early data sets on yeast. And so it was also more aspirational from a value creation perspective. Well, yeah. And so you you very much anticipated the question I was going to ask. It sounds like you were driven to biology because that was a data rich space but also you spoke about wanting to do things that have meaning. And it was a combination of the two, it seems like. I think that's true, but the weight of those changed over time. So yeah. I would say initially, a lot of that was just about, oh, this is just cooler. There's more data to be had. I can think about more interesting technical questions. And then as we started to extract more and more insights, it became clear that, wow, we were actually learning like meaningful things about cancer. and that is really valuable potentially. And so then I began to place more and more weight on that other piece of what was going on. And so ultimately ended up with a bifurcated lab at Stanford, which uh, in which half of my lab continued to do core machine learning applied to computer vision and robotics and various, and just even core machine learning methods development published at the traditional machine learning venues. And half my lab did biology published in, you know, cell and science and nature genetics. And what was interesting is that my computer science colleagues didn't even by and large realize that I did biology. (laughs) My biology colleagues had no idea I was in a computer science department. So, Well, that's probably the biggest compliment you could imagine having, right? I mean, the biggest compliment that I get even today, it makes me feel good, is when a biologist says, so you were trained as an immunologist, right? Like, thank you. Then you end up Doing extremely well at Stanford. Uh, somewhere in there, a MacArthur Award uh, comes by. Probably uh, all the accolades any academic could want. You know, this amazing career. And then you decide to walk away. Tell us the story there. Like, uh, so what leads to Coursera? Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the MacArthur Award. And it was one of various awards that I'd received. And most of the others, I was, you know, some combination of gratified and pleased This one actually 
threw me for a loop hmm. because most of the others were awards aimed at academics. And when I looked at the target population for those awards, I was like, yeah, I can I can see myself as being eligible, being worthy, I guess. And the MacArthur Award, any adult in the United States is eligible for that, Yes, which was at the time 250 million people. And, uh, you know, 25 get the award in a given year. And I'm looking at this saying, wait, what have I done that justifies this, you know, this recognition? And I looked at all my academic achievements and all the papers that I'd written. And I was like, yeah, those are good, solid papers. And I'm proud of them. And they made a difference. They moved the field forward. But I couldn't say I'd changed the world with them. Um, and so that actually made me quite, I, I don't want to say depressed, but sort of, I don't know, um, a little bit uh, pensive, I guess. And yeah. so that was 2004. And it put me on a path where for several years, I tried to find a path to kind of pay it back, figure mm-hmm. out what it is that I could do that retroactively makes me worthy of that. And I tried within Stanford. So in one of the later papers that I wrote, I'm still very proud of it in some ways inspires a lot of our work at in Citro even today. It was a paper with a PhD student of mine who's who was an MD PhD pathologist, and we looked at cancer um, histopathology samples and uh, applied machine learning, I think really for the first time to those histopathology slides and came up with the two realizations. First, that machine learning, even back then, and this is pre-deep learning, uh, was much better than your average pathologist at coming up with a prediction that actually correlated with patient outcome much better. And B, that we were actually uncovering that the machine learning was doing that by uncovering novel biology. And you can, for those in the audience that are more knowledgeable, it effectively discovered the prognostic significance of the tumor microenvironment as being critical in patient outcome. And and then with that result in hand, I went around and tried to convince most of the diagnostics companies to sort of adopt this and give better predictions to patients so that they can get better treatment. Um, and no one nibble because they all ask, so what's your product? Mm-hmm. And my response was, I don't have a product. I have a paper. Yes. Uh, but look at the paper. Look at the result. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And I said, when you have a product, come talk to us. We don't, we, we can't do anything with a paper. We need something we can actually deploy. And I came to the realization you can't do that in academia. Academics don't build products. It's completely misaligned with the incentives for both the academic and their um, trainees. And so that was kind of around 2010, 11. And then in parallel, works that I'd been doing entirely with an academic uh, intent, which is how do we educate Stanford students better? How do we take Stanford content and deliver it to the world at large um, so that more people can benefit, emerged as these MOOCs in fall of 2011. And I looked at that and we had these three classes that we put out and each of them had like 100,000 learners or more. And these were people who were, you know, every country, every age group, every walk of life would never have access to a Stanford quality education in most cases. And I couldn't just walk away. I couldn't just say, you know what, someone will do something with it because I knew that wouldn't be true in the same way that nobody did anything with my cancer work. And so I ended up taking what was supposed to be a two-year leave of absence. And if you go back and look at my Coursera vesting schedule, it was all two years of intensive work and then like a long tail where the vesting kind of dribbles on for, you know, the one day a week that I'm allowed as a Stanford professor. And then I went off and, you know, and to Coursera with a firm intent of coming back. And then the two years came to an end and Stanford said, okay, 
but you're coming back now, right? And I said, well, but the company's not really on a firm foundation yet, and it needs a you know, a bit more work. And they said, if you're not coming back, you're going to have to resign. And so I did. And that was, uh, my mother thought I was crazy. She probably still does. Um, <laughs> you don't leave a tenured position with an endowed chair from the top computer science department. That's just insanity. But, you know, there we are. So I did and and stayed at Coursera for another three years. What's really intriguing is that from the story we've gone through, it's the same forces driving you, you know, from your postdoc advisor, from your military experience. It's always to have this impact. And, I, and it sounds like the MacArthur Award was even just a further catalyst of that. Uh, just rounding out to get back to today, you then go deep back into biology at Calico and get to Incitra. I think for the audience, one thing that I'm curious to have you sort of expand on is um, machine learning is a pretty broad area just in its own right. Just even within machine learning, like machine learning for life sciences, it could mean so many different things. And for someone that is, let's say, is coming from the biology side, how would you explain that breadth and sort of what the opportunities are and where you think the impact's going to come from? I mean, machine learning is two words, but it conveys an enormous space of different techniques. No, I for sure. It, it does. And I would say even beyond that, when you say machine learning applied to biology or even narrowing it down, machine learning applied to drug discovery, yeah. there are so many different places in which the machine learning can be deployed. And I, people sometimes um, ask me, is machine learning going to be like whatever, x-ray crystallography? Is it going to be this you know, this niche technique that allows you to make a big impact on a narrow slice of whatever drug discovery. My response is no, machine learning is going to be like computers. It's going yes. to be the thing that makes a difference, a big difference in every single step of the way. Now, how big of a difference it makes really depends on how you deploy it in the same way that how you deploy computers makes a very big difference. But that's the breadth of what is available and the impact of what is available, of what is possible. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point because like people look at trends in drug design that, you know, I don't know, there's uh, genomics, there's structural biology, there's Regeneron mice models, and that it's tempting to view AI as like the next one in that line. But you're saying AI underpins all of it and uplevels all of it. It could underpin all of it. It doesn't today, although we're starting to see advancements across the spectrum. But it's hard for me to think of any part of the drug discovery and development and delivery, I would say, chain that is not going to fundamentally benefit from AI machine learning tools over time. Uh, we just need to formulate the problems correctly and collect the right data to enable people to really tackle those problems. For people that are not in the space, either from the machine learning side or the biology side, how can you help them? Could you help them become a connoisseur of machine learning and drug design, machine learning and, and life sciences? Yeah. And honestly, it's really a difficult question because I would say like any field that is very much in the public eye and I would say very much hyped, uh, it's very, there's a lot of snake oil and yeah. a lot of people making claims that are not really supported by the data. And some of those are claims about we deploy machine learning, whereas they really do that only in the most basic possible way. And some of those are claims that I think in some ways are even more destructive, which is what we've done is this incredible whatever end-to-end -end learning, and it's going to generate a thousand drugs in three years. And you know what? 
I have lived through multiple AI winters as part of my Stanford career. I lived through a phase in um, the early 90s where you couldn't say you were doing AI because um, you had to say you were doing, quote, cognitive computing because doing AI was like a <laughs> was like a sort of a little bit unsavory and not, you know, not the kind of thing that truly intellectual people did. And today, I think that we are in a world where the capabilities are enormous, but still, if your promises are even more hyperbolic than what the technology can support, you're still doing damage and discrediting the yes. field and risking that kind of backlash in the long run. Well, it sounds like you're very much taking the long view of this, that this is something that could be transformational to the entire space. And uh, But these transformations don't happen overnight. They don't. And you have to ask the right questions, uh, work closely with domain experts who understand where the big a value creation can lie and do really solid, robust science that doesn't crumble as soon as you start poking at it. Yeah. Well, is there anything you can share for what you think are that uh, where AI is right now? So I think if you look at the drug design and I guess discovery and development arc, it's easy to bundle it into three buckets. Um, the first is I would call biology discovery in which one tries to unravel the underlying biology of disease and identify actionable intervention nodes that are going to make a difference. The second is taking those nodes, targets, if you will, and turning them into chemical matters or therapeutic interventions. Um, and that typically is a drug design effort, although it could also be selection of combination therapies and things like that, but it's that piece of it. And then the third is really about once we have a, whatever, a compound that we want to deliver to patients, empowering and enabling the clinical trial by having better patient selection, better endpoints in the sense of we can tell whether a patient is improving or not improving and so on and so forth. So those are the three buckets. I would say machine learning has been applied to all three. The area that's probably the most advanced and the, the, the most people are working on it is the middle bucket. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of companies that are working on, I'm going to take targets and convert them into drugs in this or that therapeutic modality. And the reason people like that is because it is a very well-defined problem with a very clear success metric. The area that we're in at Incitro is, uh, is the very beginning of this, which is really unraveling the underlying biology of disease. And I, the reason we're we've elected to go into that area is because while the most challenging in some ways, also the most impactful because the thing that we are lacking the most in this industry today is interventions that are truly disease modifying and have a large effect size in making a patient's life better. And it's really hard because the success metrics are not well-defined and even defining the question of how do you recognize it when you've seen it is, yeah. I think, a really critical question. But it is where the biggest impact lies, because if you're not aiming your whatever your interventions in the right direction, it doesn't matter how good the drug you make is. The question is, at what point does a machine learned model of human cell lines and human organoids or whatever, do, is, when is that a better model of human behavior than a mouse? Where do you think that transition happens? So that's a great question. And I would say that there is a growing realization that animal models in most therapeutic areas are very flawed models of um, 
of human outcome. I have a friend who told me he was at a large pharma company on you know, at the executive level. He said he walked into one of those executive committee meetings at some point and said, you know, if I was a mouse with cancer, I would absolutely come here. Yes. <laughs> um, it's um, very easy to cure mice of all sorts of things, especially yes. make up diseases that mice, that mice don't get. get. Like yes. Alzheimer's yeah. disease. Yes, where you yes. yes. Introduce some weird stressor or schizophrenia. Do mice get schizophrenia? I don't know. But you create something that in some weird way can if you squint at it, it resembles schizophrenia. And then you say, okay, I've cured this. What does that even mean? Yeah. So I think what we're doing with, uh, is, is at Nisitro is actually twofold. One is leveraging our growing understanding of the genetics of disease so that we can take those genes that we know are drivers of disease and engineer those into those cellular systems that are human derived and see, do we see something that is a phenotype that we think corresponds to what is happening in those cells in a human? Now, of course, it is the case that what we then see is a narrow sliver of the disease, and you have to convince yourself that by reverting um, that sliver, that has impact on reverting the disease in a more complex system. But at least you have a model of the disease that has the same causality yes. as the as what happens in the human versus a lot of the animal models. So then you ask the question, well, okay, how do I then take that reversion and convince myself that it has impact in a human being. And that's where we, and I think uh, others as well, have come to the realization that while we can't do active experimentation in a human until that end point, the clinical trial, you can, nature has done experiments in humans. Mm. Which is an experiment in yes. the sense that uh, nature has uh, modified or selected our genetics um, that are different between you and me. And that impacts the traits, the, the phenotypes that um, exist in a human. And we know, again, that there's uh, multiple papers that have demonstrated that interventions, targets that have support in human genetics are twice as likely to be successful than ones that do not because it really is effectively an experiment of nature. And so what we try and do it in Citro is combine the best of both worlds have the intervenable cellular system where you actually can do experiments, but admittedly in a reductionist sort of limited scope. And on the other hand, bring that back and align it to uh, an experiment of nature where you can't intervene, but you can actually see the clinical traits that matter. And if you can get those two to line up, and that's where we use machine learning and human genetics to create that alignment, that's where you have a winner. And yeah. the good news is because we're building a scalable platform that creates multiple um, examples, multiple hypotheses along those lines, you can cherry pick the ones that are the most compelling. And those are the ones that you take into the clinic versus place all your bets on one or two programs and then just pray that one of those pans out. Yeah. So beyond then talking about targets, it sounds like you're trying to sort of unravel human biology, uh, the human biology of disease. Um, human causal biology of disease, because fundamentally what we're trying to do in drug discovery is not um, create an observational model of human disease, but a an interventional one, one that says, if we make this intervention in a human, their progression will hopefully improve in the following following way. And, and that sounds daunting, right? Because, uh, you know, biology is hard, biology is complex. We, you know, people don't know everything about biology. How can the computer do it? 
Uh, people don't know everything about biology. I would say it's people know very little about biology relative to the complexity of what biology is. It's a very complex, multifaceted discipline. And, and you know, we're only at the very beginning of figuring it out. So I think the what we try and do is to bring together data that allows us to uncover or detect patterns that have cause-effect relationships and then use machine learning to kind of make connections between them. So in the human clinical side, we actually have, you know, in principle, 8 billion experiments of nature where we have a cause-effect relationship between human genetic profile and a clinical outcome. Each of us is an experiment of nature. And that gives us the opportunity to, un to identify some of those cause-effect relationships. Now, there is a clear demonstration at this point across several different uh, meta-analyses that have happened that targets or clinical hypotheses that have support in human genetics are twice as likely to succeed in the clinic as ones that do not. And so that supports this notion of using experiments of nature in order to identify new clinical hypotheses. What we're bringing to the mix that is differentiated is the ability to um, create a much finer grained definition of what an, each of these experiments of nature is, which is not look at the very long-range and distal relationship between here's a gene and then there's, you know, do you or do you not get a disease, you know, 70 years in the future, but really map the underlying biological state by collecting lots and lots of high-content data about the human biology, whether it's imaging data or blood biomarkers and so on, and say, okay, this target or this modulation of this gene achieves a particular effect on human biology, which we can then connect the dots towards an, a downstream clinical outcome. But that intermediate state um, is much better powered. It's much higher content. It's a lot less biased by human preconceptions of how we define disease typically incorrectly. Um, and so that gives us the ability to connect that, to, to build that causal link. And then we juxtapose that with a different type of data that, that we generate in our own internal wet labs where we have the ability to interrogate that genotype, phenotype, or cause-effect relationships similarly with high-content readouts at the cellular level. And the benefit of that being that we can now do interventional experiments um, that where we can choose our interventions as opposed to having the experiments of nature that are happen by chance. And so we can say, well, what happens if we actually perturb this gene? Then you could say, well, it happens at the cellular level. What does it tell you about what happens in the human? And that's where machine learning comes in, is in kind of building that bridge between what we see at the cellular level in high content phenotypes, what we see at the clinical outcome level on the human side. Because you've got data from both, right? You've yeah, got data from both. And we yeah. try and link those. And I think that is, frankly, when we talk, for example, to investors and others, they tell us that that is the thing that makes us most distinct in this ecosystem. There are companies that do a lot of interesting cellular experiments with functional genomics. Not often, but sometimes with very high quality, high content data. There's a small handful of those. There are a small number of companies that look at human clinical data and try and discern patterns. They're mostly driven by predefined clinical hypotheses that a clinician has set the direction for. There's very few, if any, companies that actually try and kind of create that entire arc that goes from the cellular experiments through to the human clinical outcome. I'll just ask one clarifying question. So, you know, a lot of people, 
in, you know, gone through science backgrounds have this concept in their head that correlation doesn't lead to causation. But you're talking about causation. Like how can, uh, how does, you know, machine learning or AI like help you with causation? So first of all, there is a very um, strong set of principles um, that emerged even from some of the earlier statistical literature on instrumental variables and subsequently adopted and refined and enhanced considerably by Judeperl and others that um, create a theory, a computational theory of causality and how causality manifests uh, in terms of what patterns that you see in data. The fortunate matter for us here is that genetics actually gives us um, a fairly good proxy for causality because of the way in which genetics kind of lies upstream of pretty much all of the phenotypic consequences. There are some exceptions around the edges, but... Because a lot of causality is about temporal ordering, right? And the genetics is temporal ordered ahead of time, right? Yeah, but I mean, temporal ordering is a good starting point for causality. I can point you to places where there is still a predefined temporal ordering, but where the thing that is upstream is still not, nevertheless, not causal, the thing that is downstream. But genetics is one of the few exceptions because it is actually a thing that is randomized and intervenable in the context of the genetic experiments. And so, um, and so I think that the combination of those very strong principled foundations combined with machine learning on the uh, creation of a language of biology on the phenotypic side is a unique opportunity to bring those two things together, which, by the way, is also an answer to why now. Now is a time when biology and um, medicine and bioengineering have come together to give us, for the first time, a set of tools that allow us to measure the underlying biological and or pathophysiological state of both cells and humans at unprecedented fidelity and scale. If you, whether you think about the kind of developments that have happened happened on single cell um, RNA sequencing or other um, forms of sequencing or imaging that happens at the cellular level where we can suddenly start to look inside cells, even living cells, gives us this incredible wealth of phenotypes. And on the human side, the growing digitization of health records and especially imaging, which is just an incredibly rich modality that is tapped at this point only in very limited ways based on a filter of what a human knows to look for. We now have incredible amounts of data that allow us to kind of start building maps of biological space. And what we can do with the tools of modern day machine learning is akin, albeit at a smaller scale perhaps, to the foundational models that we're seeing in in language and in images on the web, which is what is the language of, say, histopathology, so that you can start to create a map of the kinds of patterns and coming back to causality, how different interventions move us in that space from one place to the other. Without that data, we couldn't, uh, and the amount of it and the quality of it, we couldn't build the language. Without the language, we wouldn't have enough power to understand how interventions shift us in that landscape. And so the why now is that convergence of enough data to actually do this, the right kinds of machine learning that 
basically are not just supervised learning where you have a very clear goal in mind, but really learning a language. And then the ability to have enough interventional data that we can start to understand how perturbations move us across this landscape. So I think it's all of those coming together that make the why now a true opportunity to change human health. And it's really fascinating because I I was expecting you to emphasize the sort of machine learning AI part of the why now, but uh, that the biology part seems even more important. I would say that they are both um, really important. I mean, without the large language models, we would still be in the world of to your earlier question, random forests and very simple supervision tasks. So the fact that machine learning has moved us beyond that to this notion of learning a language is what enables us to use it for discovery biology because supervised learning doesn't work if you don't know what you're supervising to. If you don't have like a clearly defined question that you're with labeled data, then you can't use supervised learning. But the whole point of discovery is that we don't know what we don't have any labels. So the fact that we're that machine learning has brought us to this point is critical, but equally critical is that we have enough data to the point that we could actually start learning, say, the language of, of whatever, cell images or, or of histopathology, because you can't do language learning at the kind of scales that of biology, biological data that we had a decade ago where you were ecstatic if you had a data set of a few hundred samples. Well, and maybe akin to other areas of, of uh, AI machine learning, you're talking about learning almost like from the corpus of biology in a sense, of which disease is one part of that, but that you can, your, your system is learning all of it. That's 100% true. In fact, if you restrict yourself to diseased patients or to diseased individuals, then um, you are, first of all, by definition, looking at a smaller subset, but you're also at that point, accepting the agreed upon definitions of what disease really is. So if you think about a lot of the polygenic diseases, they're often driven by a multitude of different factors, some genetic, some environmental, and they generate a distribution. And disease is usually defined as a tail of the distribution. But where one defines that tail is a very subjective value judgment that is based on some preconception or some, you know, how the patient, how sick the patient feels, how inclined the clinician is to uh, diagnose that patient. So much noise and variability gets added into defining that tail. Whereas if we learn a uh, the causal map of the entirety of that distribution, we're losing a lot of that subjective and subjectiveness and variability and gaining a tremendous amount of statistical power by examining the entirety of the distribution as opposed to some fairly arbitrary and highly noisy dichotomy of, oh, this person is sick and these other and this other one is healthy. Uh, we're almost out of time, so I was just curious to get a sense from you. I mean, you, you spent so much time thinking about life science and healthcare. What, what do you do for yourself to maintain a healthy life? So I believe, and the um, scientific progress has actually um, reinforced that recently, that being outside in nature is a huge part of being healthy. And so uh, both uh, physical and mental health. In my spare time while, you know, course of day-to-day life, I try and go hiking outdoors several times a week. um, And we're fortunate enough to live in a part of the world where there are beautiful hikes within, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minute drive of my house. And then I also try, ideally, once or twice a year, pandemic, of course, made that challenging, to go somewhere 
beautiful and exotic, hopefully that I've not been to before. And at this point, I've been to, I think, 65 different countries and, um, you know, really looking for places that have beautiful nature, whether it's mountains or oceans. I love to scuba dive um, and really try and explore the beauty of the world that we live in before we destroy it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And, and hopefully if we do our jobs right, I think that learning of you're doing for biology will help disease, but may go way beyond and apply to many different areas uh, beyond people as well. So as you know, Vijay, I've um, often spoken about the broader idea, if you will, of digital biology and how we are living in a world where the next discipline, if you will, for the next you know 30 years or so is the ability to um, to measure biology at unprecedented fidelity and scale, analyze the data that we collect using the tools of data science and machine learning, and then engineer biology to do something different using similar uh, similar set of tools from bioengineering. And while I'm focused on applying that in the context of healthcare, I think it has equally significant ramifications in agriculture, in the environment, in biomaterials, in energy, and so on. And so I'm hopeful that maybe other people, because I'm busy doing this, can take some of those ideas and and, and help us stop the damage that we're doing to the planet. Oh, I'm with you there. I think in 20, 30 years, hopefully, all the things that we see around us that are made from plastic are made from biomaterials uh, that are done in a sustainable way. And that that will, in the end, could be one of biology's greatest contributions, and that all the things we've talked about today would hopefully feed into that as well. I very much hope so. Well, uh, Daphne, thank you so much for being on BioEats World. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z, and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.